This is Undisciplined. I'm Nalini Nadkarni. We all feel more calm after a walk in the foothills or a stroll along a river path. That is congruent with the findings of hundreds of studies that have documented that interactions with nature boost happiness and combat depression and anxiety. But do we all experience these benefits in the same ways? A new study from researchers at the University of Vermont reported that over 95% of the studies on this topic included people from wealthy countries that are predominantly Caucasian, with few or no studies from low-income nations or indigenous peoples. Today, we'll talk with two authors of this study, which has drawn remarkable attention from psychologists, environmental scientists, and conservationists. These findings have tremendous import on how we might better understand humans' interactions with nature and how to better foster access to nature for all people. Our guests today are Carlos Andres Gallegos Rio Frio and Rochelle Gould, both at the University of Vermont. Rochelle and Carlos Andres, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Carlos Andres and Rochelle, your, your recent article in the journal Current Research in Environmental Sustainability about the relationships between nature and mental health is, is fascinating to me. And it's, I realize it's so important as humans become increasingly separated from nature in so many regions of the world. But, but before we discuss the science of your study, I'd like to envision where you carry out your research. Um, Carlos Andres, can you start us off by telling us your current research setting, where you are now? Yeah, sure. Uh, I am a postdoctoral associate at the Gan Institute for the Environment, and I was very fortunate uh, to receive the fellowship to conduct research on the intersection of nature and human health, very specifically mental health. And Rochelle, I'd like to learn a little bit more about the Gund Institute for the Environment at the University of Vermont. Could you describe that a bit? It seems like a unique and very wonderful uh, part of your institution. So what it is, is a university-wide institute started, became university-wide a few years ago, and it, it focuses on environmental research. So research that's aiming to move us towards transitions towards sustainability. So one of the things that's really special about it that I really appreciate is it's, it's very, very interdisciplinary. So it includes people from, as far as I know, all the schools at UVM, all seven schools at the University of Vermont, across the board, understanding that, that environmental issues really permeate society and that we need to be taking a really holistic approach to think about how to deal with them. Rochelle, could you sort of expand a bit? I know that many of our listeners are aware of the benefits of nature to human health, but, but for background, could you outline some of the major benefits that we get mental health-wise from being in nature? Yeah, absolutely. So in the past decade or two, there's really been an explosion of work on the, the mental health implications of spending time in nature. And there are now hundreds of studies that demonstrate how nature can improve our mental well-being. So specifically, uh, some of the benefits that we see most often explored and that, that research has shown nature can provide are improved psychological well-being overall. This is by various measures of psychological well-being. Um, very common to see reductions in stress, anxiety, and depression. And then there's a lot about improved mood and emotional state as a result of nature. And there's, there's also work on, on awe and sort of this, this work on awe also intersects with that, that other work on stress, depression, mood, etc. 
Fantastic. Well, sounds like nature cures all. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we'll find out more about that as we continue to talk. Let's get to the paper. Um, it draws on a very large data set that was comprised of, I believe, 174 studies on human nature interactions between 2010 and 2020. That's remarkable. And, and Rochelle, I'm wondering, how did you go about identifying these studies and, and sort of tracking them down? Yeah, great question. So we used a pretty standard review process that, you know, in, in academia sort of being systematic about finding articles that address a certain topic. So we had a set of search terms and our search our search terms had, you know, one set of words around nature. So things like forest and nature and environment, that kind of thing. And then an, another set of search terms that were about mental health. So dealing with, with these mental health issues. So we started there with this basic search of the intersection of mental health and environment in the scholarly literature. And then we did a process and, and Carlos Andres really led this process, but uh, this process of within that. So we did that systematic search um, and then within that, we looked at the bibliographies, the works cited of those papers, just basically to make sure that we we weren't missing anything, particularly reviews. So we looked at other reviews of this literature to make sure that we weren't missing any uh, any important articles. So so it's it's pretty re- replicable. That's one of the aspects of this. So so something that 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 someone else could have done a similar study and and come up with similar results. That's the idea. Got it. I love that. So that if another researcher or maybe you guys, your own research team would want to repeat this, we could actually replicate that because we would know what your search terms were and be able to reproduce that. That's fantastic. And Rochelle, could you continue and just describe for our listeners in, in kind of a general way what your approach was and what your general results were? Absolutely. So I think an important concept in terms of our general approach that, that we haven't mentioned yet is one of my favorite academic concepts that that has one of the best acronyms that anyone's ever created, I think. What and, is that? And that is the idea of weird psychology. So weird being an acronym. So this is a concept that was created by Joseph Henrik and colleagues a decade or two ago. And it's this idea of the fact that most psychological research is done on populations that are weird, that is, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And so the point, the point that these scholars made is that that is a very particular segment of the human population. So it is that that, that combination, the weird combination, is, is globally peculiar, as they say it. And so, and, and the fact that all of our psychological research, almost all of our psychological research is done on this population means that we're making claims that we say are universal. So psychologists say these are universal claims about human nature, but they're really about this particular weird population. And so that idea has just really fascinated me for a long time. And, and I, you know, sort of a really important idea. So like a huge focus of my work is on the equity aspects of environmental issues, equity and, and justice aspects of environmental issues. And so anytime there's this sort of big, you know, blind spot or, or bias in the way work is occurring, I'm really interested in it. And so that idea, um, you know, just has always been sort of important to me. And when we look at environmental psychology, really the question is, is this happening in environmental psychology in the way that it's happening in psychology more generally? And so uh, when Carlos and Andres and I started talking about this issue and, and his interest, he, he brought up these really fascinating points that he may talk about, about the way mental health is conceived in indigenous communities. As being quite different than the way it may be perceived in 
you know, sort of dominant U.S. culture. And and sort of as we were talking, it just seemed like, okay, we really need to know if this pattern that we're seeing in psychology more generally, if that's happening in this burgeoning field of mental health research. And if so, what's going on there? What does it look like? What might that mean? So that's what we that's what we set out to, to study. And I can <laughs> and I can say a little more about so what did we do? So we wanted to know, is there a bias in this research on mental health and nature? So we did this search, we got these 174 articles together, and then Carlos Andres really and the team, Amaya and Hassan, went through and really in, in great detail classified who are the populations that these studies are dealing with, where are they? And and then also a, a, some information about what how they're conceiving of nature, how they're describing nature. Um, and looking through that, we saw that the, it was very, very unrepresentative of the global population, basically. And, and so, um, you know, two, two interesting findings there. I think it was not surprising to us that the populations that are being studied are overwhelmingly white and in more wealthy countries. That, unfortunately, was sort of what we might expect from the general pattern in psychological research overall. What was a little surprising is how what a great proportion of the studies didn't report ethnic information at all, ethnicity information, or a lot of sort of details of demographic background. They just sort of didn't see that as important, needing to report that information. And so that was a little bit surprising. So about over 60% of studies just didn't talk about those details. And so that's- Wow. Yeah. So that's one of the things that we're saying, okay, at the very least, <laughs> we need to be recognizing yeah. that this may be very important and, and having that information upfront in studies so that it can be included in the you know, in the larger understanding of these patterns. Absolutely. Um, Carlos Andres, um, Rochelle mentioned that you've been working very extensively with indigenous cultures in Ecuador and other South American countries. And I'm wondering how, how does your knowledge of the relationship between nature and, and mental health in those countries um, reflect what you see in terms of the, this lack of representation of people from lower income and indigenous populations. Can you describe what you perceive as the relationship between nature and mental health in these countries that you're so familiar with and have worked in for so long? Yes, no, I think that I, I, I can tell about my personal uh, experience of how I engage this specific theme long time ago. So in my work, I ask like depression. How is depression in indigenous communities in the highlands of Ecuador? Is it the same that I'm seeing in these big manuals like the DSM, the Diagnosis and Statistics Manual, the way disease or mental illness are described? Would it be the same if I want if I go to a rural community and try to pass like a, a clinical check, a screening, and the summary of all that work is that no, it is not the same. It is different. And one central core aspect of indigenous psychology is precisely nature. They call it Pachamama, Mother Nature, and it's not a thing. It is a hole where, where human beings are embedded. So that means that standardized tools that we use in psychology won't be able to capture clearly mental health issues in populations like the ones I work with. 
Now, we have a panel of about 15 uh, people between uh, mental health professionals, social workers, indigenous leaders, and other uh, health professionals, both in the biomedical model and traditional. So this panel uh, is comprised of people in Bolivia, Peru, and Ecuador. And we are arriving in general asking these large questions. What is mental health for indigenous communities? Uh, what is well-being? What is depression? What is anxiety? What is stress? We are arriving to similar conclusions. It is different. Elaborating a little bit on the point Carlos Andres made about the importance of nature to psychology in indigenous communities, and then I think a lot of other communities. I think that's one thing that that I also work a lot on and that just I find extremely important in our conversations about the environment. Um, and I so I can offer an example. So Pachamama is one example. And another example that, that comes up a lot in my work. So I do a fair amount of work in Hawaii with Native Hawaiian communities and, and colleagues and partners. And one of the things that comes up a lot there in, in that indigenous context is the idea of kinship. And this is pretty common in a lot of indigenous from, from reading and looking at a lot of scholarship on indigenous ways of understanding the world. So this, this idea of kinship with non-human nature. And I think, so, so this kind of goes, goes hand in hand with what Carlos Andres was just talking about. So he's talking about that mental health is perceived really differently and just, we need to understand it differently. In addition, that the human relationship with nature is perceived really differently. And so kinship is an example of that. So feeling like what that means is, you know, in my understanding anyway, is, is feeling like nature and, and elements of the natural or of elements of ecosystems are part of your family. And so you feel the same sort of anxiety or the same connection, the same responsibility for these, you know, a, a, a bird or a bay, <laughs> a particular area that you would for a family member. And it's, it's sort of easy to say that. And I think really hard to understand how profoundly that might affect you and how, how profound that, that experience can be. And so if you take these two things together, what Carlos Andres was really elaborating on the difference of what stress means and what depression means, that mental health piece, and then also that, that relationships with nature are really different in a lot of communities, that sort of that that combination was really what motivated this study. Is that we we know there's just a lot of variability. Um, so when we look at these studies of the relationship between nature and mental health, might the results be different if we were doing that research in different populations? When you asked Rochelle at at the beginning of the interview, what are the benefits? One of the things she said is. Several studies have found that being in nature has a positive effect on depression. When you see it from the perspective of the Andean communities we work with, it is the contrary situation. So nature and community at large, because Pachamama is the core of the community, are the protective factors. So disconnecting from there is what prompts or, 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 or creates the risk for the depression. And the only time that I have seen in my work something that I could describe as a collective depression was in a volcano eruption in the area of Tungurahua in Ecuador, where a whole indigenous population had to be relocated people were like suffering so much of leaving behind their lands, their animals, 
in the indigenous culture, the animals, you are so responsible of, of they are like uh, little siblings. You have to take care. You are responsible of that. So that, that caused like massive collective depression, especially the elders. They prefer to stay rather than to move and, and, and just like pass to the different world or to a different state of consciousness right there. Well, that, I think that's a very important distinction. That is, when one is removed from Pachamama, that's when the mental health issues begin, not, not the opposite. So that's a really interesting concept, I think, and a very important distinction. And I think that, um, you know, from what I understand, it seems like this lack of national and ethnic diversity is not just a subject concerning nature and mental health. It also affects this bigger picture of conservation work and conservation groups. And I, I remember a landmark study in 2014 by Dorsetta Taylor, who was at the University of Michigan, and she reported on the diversity and ethnicity of conservation groups, their membership, their staff, and their board members, and found them basically woefully underrepresented in any group other than whites. And, and wondering whether you could, how you might comment on that. What, what, what are the implications of that, of, of conservation groups themselves being comprised differentially of white and more more wealthy individuals. Yeah, that's extremely important work and and I'm really glad that it sort of that she did that work and that it got the attention that it that it has and if the people involved in conservation working in those conservation organizations are from a a small subset of society, they're probably not going to represent the the rich diversity of ways that humans interact with nature and 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 understand why nature is important. I think it's also important to name that that the, the sort of dominant European and North American white culture is is problematic when we think about the environment and how we interact with it. And this sort of patriarchal colonial history of conservation is really embedded in that culture. So specifically, it's important that we have representation and that we have an inclusive environmental movement that is not only based in that culture that, that has such a problematic history and problematic implications. Uh, Carlos Andres, I came across the word ethnosphere in your paper and was intrigued by it. Could, could you define that and describe why we consider that term ethnosphere important? Sure. And I love the question, really, because I believe that the concept ethnosphere is so fundamental, especially now that uh, frameworks like uh, planetary health are taking precedence. So for, for, for the people that, that might not be familiar with this concept, it is a framework within at large public health and seeing that it is impossible to think in human health without thinking in the health of ecosystems and of the biosphere as a whole. Now, as important as the biological web of life, known as the biosphere, it's the cultural fabric that has existed from ancient times. So this is a universe of different ways of relating with nature and probably living in different spaces. 
Wade Davis, who coined the term, he says a, a phrase that I really like it. He says, other cultures are not failed attempts of being you. They are unique manifestations of the human spirit. So when we brought up this concept of ethnosphere and we put it side to side to, side to the biosphere and in the context of planetary health, we are saying two things. One is it is fundamental to include the rest of humanity in this field of mental health, well-being, nature. And the other aspect, we won't be able to achieve planetary health if it is not inclusively. So we must work together. And to work together, we have to respect, reciprocate, understand, make the effort to work with the other, to work in otherness, to work in diversity, to promote epistemological justice. So definitely, and related to the the question about what is happening in in, uh, natural sciences and conservation, both academic and uh, non-for-profit organizations, it is the same across the border. We, We have to start working together across the border in other countries, with other researchers, with other grassroots, with other NGOs, if we want to tackle the the environmental emergency together. And we we say it in the paper, this more intangible aspect that is well-being and mental health is a fundamental part of the discourse of the actions that we are undertaking to basically tackle this emergency. Mm-hmm. Fantastic! I love the passion of both of you. That that comes out in slightly different ways, but um, but thank you for very much for that answer, Rochelle. I have a kind of a speculative question for you. Um, we know that there's growing reliance of humans on virtual rather than real interactions uh, with many aspects of society, but also with nature. So, what about virtual nature and its effects on human health? Are there universal aspects of of effects of virtual nature on on mental health of humans that that you know of? Would, you know, aromatherapy or a screensaver that shows a nature image or, uh, you know, some sort of backdrop on the wall that shows some sort of nature function, would those have an equivalent effect, do you think, on people who are, as you have mentioned, come from these wealthier white nations versus other nations? Or what might be your speculation on that? Yeah, well, so I, I do think it's important to sort of separate those things out. So the, the first thing that occurs to me is, I think that question of how it, are the mental health implications of virtual nature versus actual nature different? That's part of that question, maybe. Um, and so, and, and that's something, there, there's quite a bit of work done that uses pictures or, or even virtual reality experiences of nature in this sort of mental health implication. So that's one thing. And I think we, we definitely see in the populations that are being studied, that virtual nature in all of those ways you mentioned has an impact. I don't know that there's been a direct comparison of, of is how does virtual nature compare to actual nature? And there are lots of tricky aspects study design wise of how you might do that, right? Because you have to make them really equivalent. Um, 
So, so I, I don't know that that has been directly addressed, but definitely we know that in the Western and, and white populations that have been studied, sort of Northern and white populations that have been studied, we do see that virtual nature has impacts. So I think your question of what, what do we expect? I think really interesting question. And I, I'm, I definitely am not an expert at all in, in, the, in, the, in the, the sort of interface with technology and, and the way that, that sort of different forms of input um, are, are dealt with in different populations. But, you know, the thing that occurs to me is how familiar people are with and how comfortable people are with these different modes of communication might have a really big impact. And so, you know, images, maybe that's something that's pretty familiar and maybe more comfortable, but something that was more um, technologically mediated might have, might not be comfortable or natural, or might not sort of have the same psychological effects because it wouldn't it wouldn't seem real, you know, um, to people from other populations. I don't know. Yeah, it's, an, it's a really interesting question. And I think a really great thing to, to set out there for further exploration. Exactly. So it might be an area for future research. Um, well, thank you both so much for taking the time to share this fascinating and very important piece of research with our listeners. I really enjoyed hearing from both of your perspectives. And we at Utah Public Radio wish you the very best for your work in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. It was a beautiful interview. Thanks so much. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 1030 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Nalini Nadkarni. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>